It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the podcast, which is the Nature and Countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. My name is Fergus Collins. I'm your host. And this is a season of beautiful, mindful escapes into the green outdoors in search of wildlife and wilder people. And our wild person this week is Call the Midwife star Jenny Agata. And she's chatting to our very own Maria Hodson about her role in the original Railway Children film and how she was tempted back to join the cast of the new movie, The Railway Children Return. It's a lovely interview. She's such an entertaining and wise character, and it's lovely to hear her voice. And later, join me and the podcast team as we read your letters and emails and chat about what we've been doing in the countryside. And please don't forget to leave positive likes and feedback on whichever podcast provider you use. And you can email me anytime on editor at countryfile.com. I look forward to hearing from you. You were 17 years old, I think, when you starred as Bobby Waterbury in the, the classic, in the original Railway Children. And it's now 52 years later, you're reprising the role as Bobby and in the Railway Children Return. So what was it like to revisit both the character and the original location of the film, um, the Keeleyamworth Valley Railway? in Yorkshire it was there's two as you say there's two different things there one is is just the personal thing of going back to somewhere that I remember so fondly and so well I've re- I've visited since so it has you know it has a link to it in the past but to be going back there to film again um such a similar story and play the same character I mean how rare is that you get to play your same character some some 40 years on so there's there's my memories and there's the feeling that it you know no time has gone by at all because when I got there everything looked so much the same indeed meeting when I arrived on the platform um, the um, train driver waved to me and I went over and he said I drove this train 
1970. <laughs> I went, oh, right. So, you know, he'd, he'd been, you know, we'd met before. And then he introduced his daughter, who was then 40 and not there for when, when the film was made, and said, and she's now um, one of the, the, the first woman to drive these steam trains, which I thought was wonderful, a lovely link. I just very touched that, you know, the same enthusiasm was there um, from the people who supported the railways, the, the volunteers, the, the look of the place was very similar, different advertising up there for 1940s and all of that. And for me personally, um, it's lovely because the film has has played quite a, you know, an, a major part of my life. When I did it when I was, I did it first of all when I was 14 for the BBC and, and it was a successful TV series. It had actually been done before that. So the story I knew was always a successful story. And then Lionel Jeffries, um, I had done Walkabout and Lionel Jeffries was making the film. I almost didn't do it because I thought I'd just turned 17 and I thought well, perhaps I'm a bit old, but I was quite a young 17-year-old. And he's very persuasive. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I found myself saying, yes, absolutely. And was it was just lovely to do uh, and great fun. We, it, we had a lovely time making it, so that was important. It was wonderful working with Bernard Cribbins. Diana Sheridan was, in, was enchanting. Lionel Jeffries was like a father figure over the whole thing. It's like an Edwardian father who used to give us half a crown if a shot went well, with Sally going, this isn't going to go very far in the pub. Um, but um, So the whole feeling of that was really, really good. And then I was separated from it for a number of years. And I really, it was at that time I really needed to decide that that's what I was doing with my life, was being an actor. And I went into the theatre. And having done quite a lot of theatre, a lot of television, because there was a lot of drama on, on TV at that time, I then went to the States when I was 21, after being at the National Theatre. And, and it was after 17 years there that I returned to the UK. And people, the first question I was asked by journalists was about the railway children. And I realised that whilst I'd been away... It had had a whole other life, because although it had this wonderful big royal premiere and all the rest of it, it had disappeared when I'd been there. It, it, you know, the film had been, as they are, you know, as they do, and it had gone, because it wasn't the time of DVDs and videos and all of that. But whilst I'd been in the States, they had been playing it on television, and then the videos came out, and then DVDs came out, and generations were seeing it. So that the people that I had grown up with had had children, like my I was about to when I came back as well. I had my, my my child. And suddenly the film was being re-shown to another generation and then another generation. And it's had a really, you know, it's, a, it's become a classic and it has a really wonderful life. And I still get, you know, people approaching me about it, about the film, not, you know, not about being an actor or not about my role in it, but about the film and what that meant, which is lovely. So that, the whole thing of revisiting the film again. I mean, it was interesting. When I first came back, in fact, there was a few years and I was asked to play mother in a TV version of The Railway Children, which I immediately said yes to because I had actually invested quite a lot of time in, in reading up about Nesbitt and her life and what she, you know, what she was about because I thought it would make a very good film and it, I'm, I'm afraid that script has gone into a bottom drawer. But it's a, an interesting story. She's a very interesting woman. Because I felt, yes, yeah, so that would really make sense to me because... Inesbit wrote about, she wrote both from Roberta's point of view, but also in a way the mother's point of view, because the mother is the writer, the mother is Nesbit. Um, so she's both those characters, and it was lovely to be able to play both. And it was lovely to hear Jemima Rupert say the lines you know, that I'd said years before. And then it was so interesting, because people would say, oh, why did you do that? I mean, I, t I, t I, I, 
you know, everybody thinks of you as Roberta. How could you take on this other role? And I go, well, because all that time's gone by and I am older and I am the mother now. So it's lovely to be able to play it. So that was the, you know, that was revisiting in a really nice, lovely way. And then when this came up, when the film came up and they were talking about a sequel, because um, no one had ever discussed a sequel to the film. I mean, you wouldn't take an Inez bit story and then try to you know, invent what happened to the railway children afterwards. But this was something else. This was, you know, the whole idea of taking it into a whole other period because it's written prior to the First and the Second World War, which is a very specific time. And it is a time of innocence and it's a time of hope. And it's a time when the children grow up thinking everything's going to be all right in the end. And I think once one's had the First and Second World War, we no longer believe that everything's going to be all right in the end. And we live today in a time where we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And we accept, uh, you know, there, there is no possible utopia. We just have to live the best we can and do the best we can. And so consequently, to take the ideas that Nesbitt had, she loved the idea of time, like time travel, and she would have loved to have been able to move into this time. And I think, you know, the idea that one actually takes her character, Roberta, transports her into 1940. We had to, to really look at what Roberta's life might have been so that it, it felt real. Um, and then look at the world again through children's eyes, those adventures that they might have, but they're completely different adventures. It's a completely different time. It's a, it's a harder, grittier time. It's easier to recognise from where we are today than the railway children of the Edwardian era, in a way. I mean, that's beautiful and idyllic and and the simplicity is, is absolutely lovely. And it's, it's like watching a sort of theatrical piece. Um, but the war, I think, um, in many ways, you know, we're, we're, although we filmed it before the war with Ukraine, when, one, when I saw the film just before it was about to come out, the beginning of it took my breath away because it was about the children leaving home, leaving parents. There's one mother who grabs her child from the train and says, I can't leave you, I can't leave you, and just takes the child away. But that that tearing apart of families and the the buildings that were burnt out in Manchester where they're, where the, the, um, they're living, that sense of war and what it was doing was so raw there. And that sets up this new story. And that actually, you know, it's very easy to understand that today you know with where we are today i did find that the film i noticed that there were tears in my eyes at a, a couple of moments it is very powerful and it it's uncomfortable in places so it's not something that you can say oh this is just beauty you know that you'll, you'll just have the most charming time and you'll laugh all the way through and it's a magical adventure it is some some um, parts of it are quite hard but, yes, but, yes. but I, like as you say that reflects where we're at and it does update it to and because to the modern, they're yeah. children they they make an adventure of everything so they're going to win you know they have this sense that they will win out they they, they can do it you know and then and there's fun in it and and there's some very funny things that that happen and there are lovely things that reflect the original story, and there are all sorts of little hints in there. I mean, not the least of which, I remember when I walked onto the set, which was referred a great deal to the house that we would have seen in The Railway Children, although it was 
um, the house in Haworth and not the, the three chimneys and the house, you know, by the railway line that we'd seen before. It was filled with things that Roberta would have had. Um, it was filled with the toys that she might have had as a child. In fact, I saw a little, you know, tin steam engine on the side. And I thought, oh, yes, of course, that's little Peter's blown up train that he got back. And there was a little um, Edwardian uh, theatre, um, a cardboard theatre with all the little cutouts and characters and things. And it's because all those things you do hang on to. I mean, I've hung, hung on to a lot of my childhood things and I've got a lot of my son's childhood things and those are now going to the grandchild, you know. So referencing things that have gone in the past, I think is very important and because it gives you a connection, even though you know you're in another time. Absolutely. And and to you, where do you see the, the similarities and the differences between the two films? Where, where do you, yeah, how, how do you view that? The similarities to me between the two are the fact that it's seen through the children's point of view. And that's very much what Nesbitt did with her story and what Lionel did, was he managed to have, it, have a very sort of innocent view of the world and, and rather extraordinary, you know, in, uh, in The Railway Children, um, the children meeting Perks and meeting all the characters, they all seem a little bit eccentric and peculiar and, and it's the way children would see them. It's sort of like they're not... Nothing was quite ordinary. It was... Um, sort of delightful and, and they had fun with it and you and as mother says we're going to play it I think she said we're going to play it being poor in the countryside <laughs> um, but they they you know it's, it's all very nice <laughs> um, but they didn't have their proper breakfast did they they had they had they had pie, apple pie for breakfast or whatever in this one it's seen again from the children's point of view so it means that everything that they come across that is puzzling we can see why it's puzzling I mean adults might say oh you know these problems exist because in America we deal with with racism there because of the segregation that happened and it was law um they they um the soldiers that came over were still under those laws that meant that the, the, the black and the white soldiers were separated. Uh, and the repercussions of that are terrible because it creates these uh, frictions and the racism that's there. And the children are completely puzzled by this, as one should be, because it doesn't make sense. Um, there shouldn't be that separation. So they see that very plainly. They can they see that it, it should be easy to resolve and they go about trying to resolve it. Uh, I think that the story does have a very nice ending to it in as much as it looks towards the possibilities of of repairing damage, which I think is is terrific. And that's, as I say, because it's it is a children's adventure. Absolutely. Um, you, you just mentioned something that I, yeah, I was wanting to t- ask about, which that the Railway Children Returns draws in part on the uh, events of the Bamba Bridge riot, which was in Lancashire in 1943. So that racial conflict and, and similar racial conflicts amongst the US forces stationed here, it's quite a little known aspect of Second World War history in Britain. And were, were you aware of it yourself prior to filming? And, and how do you feel that the film handled that story? I was very much aware of it before we made The Railway Children Return, um, not the least of which have been some very, very good dramas, you know, um, sm- and books, you know, Small Island which looked not only at the what happened during Windrush, but before with the soldiers. And yes, I did know those those stories. I didn't I what I didn't realize, I think, was that it was a legal, it was a legal requirement, that separation, which is so insidious. Uh, and apparently they tried to make changes. And there were other things, which was that um the forces that were sent out first were in fact the the um 
black battalions and, and groups, and they were sent to set things up for everybody else. So they made a, a difference in the way people served. All of that just is appalling, really. So the, the, there are areas of it that were a complete surprise to me, yes. Uh, and it's good, I think, to draw people's attention to it. Yes. And like you said, it's nicely done. Well, I think it's well done for children in that there is a sense that reconciliation is possible at the end, because I think a children's film, children are almost universally quite hopeful about life. So you tackle quite a difficult issue and a a sad part of um, British and US history. Uh, during the war, but it's it, there's a sense at the end of hope and um, progress, I suppose. Um, that you can have reconciliation, yes. you can actually make things You can make yeah. changes, yeah, you can improve things. Speaking of the um, the magic that children bring and find, um, both Railway Children films reveal the magic that children find in the outdoors itself and the, um, the kind of the respite and revitalisation again. You're a patron of a charity called Go Beyond, for, yes, which um, gives children who've suffered hardship, um, a break in the countryside. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, it's it's a very simple idea, but it, it makes a hell of a lot of difference to an awful lot of city children who have had difficult lives. They may be children who have been carers to parents, um, who don't get time, who have never been away. And it just gives... I mean, I, I, I feel so spoiled myself as I, I was brought up abroad. I was always out in the country. I was going to the sea. Uh, I have lots and lots of memories of that. And those memories sustain one. And just in a small way, Go Between offers the opportunity for the children who, who wouldn't have any of that to get away completely, be totally looked after, to play with other children, to to discover the countryside and to go away with a sense of of a different, you know, different possibilities and having enjoyed themselves and just some good memories to put down there. Um, I think it's a, it's a lovely idea and it's something I just wanted to support. In general, do you feel that children would benefit from getting outdoors more, especially in this time of extreme screen usage? <laughs> uh, computer, computers everywhere, basically. Yeah. Yes, I must say, when we were filming The Railway Children, I wasn't aware of any iPads or um, iPhones or anything when we were doing that. It was, it was rather lovely. And the children automatically did return to just being children playing games and encouraged me to play games with them. I mean, we'd sit around, you know, they wanted, all the time they wanted to just play play games, tell stories, um, get out there and play. And, and that's what you see in the film. And yes, it is lovely when children can get out. I mean, it, the COVID years have been frightful. I mean, for for me, I, I was in the country, which meant I, I could get outside. But I really felt for people that were in the city that were entirely trapped um, and could not be out there. And and we realise, you know, what a resource that is. And I think people flooded into the parks and to the seaside and out into the country as soon as they could. And hopefully we'll always be able to enjoy that. The brick gives us a great deal. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, it is. It's a, a great thing that we have here. And um the more children who can get out there, the better. So I think the the Go Beyond charity sounds brilliant. I noticed that a f- quite a few of your films seem to be set in the great outdoors. So I was thinking of the Snow Goose and Walkabout and Railway Children. It's sort of yeah. they seem to celebrate that that freedom of vast, you know, or you know, a landscape. Yes, yeah, not American Werewolf in London, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they did have the Yorkshire Moors. They did have the minute. Yes, exactly. They 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 also it plays a you know a 
it's almost a character in the film as well, isn't it? So I was just wondering, is that um, is that a deliberate choice on your part or is it just kind of, it's just happened to transpire It's just, transpire it's just what way? happened. I, I, I must say, I, I hadn't really thought about it. And I realised that that's been an extraordinary kind of privilege in my life as well, is, is actually being part of that and enjoying the places that I've been to. I mean, yes, Riddle of the Sands was on the sea, sailing places, um, walkabout, travelling across Australia was, I mean, extraordinary. I mean, yes. But that's just a matter of luck. <laughs> it wasn't by choice, it just was luck. Well done. <laughs> that's excellent work, yeah. Bernard Cribbins, who played the station master in the original Railway Children, um, recently died, sadly. How do you remember him? Very, very fondly. Um, he will always remain with me um, because he just was... He was the entertainer on set all the time. I mean, Lionel was the father. Dinah Sheridan was just so warm and terrific to be around. And um, and Bernard used to just play games, sing songs, tell stories. Um, Gary took a little film of him, actually, uh, doing a sort of... Being a golfer and, and, and then missing his stroke and then falling over. And it's just delightful because he would... It was like a little silent movie that he made. And he would he would tell, sing songs for us. And, you know, um, I'm not sure that he actually did Hole in the Road for us, but he would do other songs. <laughs> um, so I remember him very, very fondly. And, uh, and he just was, in the film, I think he's just entirely delightful and touching. I mean, he goes between being quite a kind of comic character that the children are taken by to this vulnerable... Um, you know, the birthday party and things in, in Railway Children. I thought he was just just so lovely in that. So he was he he gave, he was an, he was a great performer. He was a wonderful, wonderful actor and storyteller. <laughs> so moving to y- your relationship with the countryside, what are your favourite places to escape to in Britain and why? Oh, it has to be Cornwall because that's we have a home in Cornwall. And in a way, that's where the heart is, um, I think, because it is so, so wild. I mean, it is it's further than anywhere to get to. I mean, by train, you can get to Scotland faster. You know. so Cornwall is the longest train journey, the most beautiful train journey, actually, right? You go down to the coast and across um, Brunel's Bridge, across the Tamar, and then you're in Cornwall. And then the place itself is... Um, it feels as though it's still untamed. I mean, you've got lovely cities and, and lovely villages, but the thing that touches me are is the landscape and the rocks and the sea and the roughness of it. And it's both benign and very difficult. You know, you, you when it's cold, it's really cold and you fight against the wind. I remember taking my son out in a, in a hailstorm once and trying to say, it's going to be all right, and having, having to just hide down behind a hedge as the, the hailstones came down and pelted us. Um, so you do, you get hit by the elements there, but you enjoy them. You have, res- you have a lot of respect for them. And I love the walks there. I mean, it's just wonderful to go along the coastal paths. Really beautiful. It's a really beautiful part of the world, yes. Good choice, good choice. And what's your strangest countryside experience? The most unusual landscape I've ever been in was going to New Zealand um, because in very, very short spaces of time, you could go from undulating hillsides to ragged stones and rocks to... It just would change from one place to the next and volcanic and... You know, there was, the, when we arrived, there had been a big earthquake and you always had the sense that the earth was on the move there. I think that and Iceland both have this feeling about them of things could erupt and change and it's the world in change, you know. And I think that that is uh, really interesting to, to be around. 
it does sound as though you are drawn to the wilder elements of nature. <laughs> it's funny when you think of New Zealand. New Zealand has always been place, a place that people have wanted to visit. You know, they took boats out there years and years ago because you, you see places over there that were Victorian tourist places. And you think, goodness me, I mean, people were sailing all the way to get to see New Zealand. And they're so proud of their landscape. Uh, it is it is a magnificent one. One can understand why it's, you know, Lord of the Rings is shot there, because it is strange. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In Britain, which rural issues do you lose the most sleep over? Yeah, the, you know, there are changes all the time in farming. Uh, and I both, I mean, I enjoy what the farmers do, and you see them, you know, in Cornwall, there's still the, the plowing that goes on and everything. But when you read sometimes, you know, about some of the old techniques of farming, which, by the way, were changed, many of them, by E. Nesbitt's father, who was an agriculturist, an, an agricultural chemist. And he came up with lots of different ways of being able to use the soil for longer and putting in you know, fertilisers and, and all of that. So those changes, I think, can sometimes overproduce. There's all those questions about, oh, actually, one of one of the issues that I, th- I think is, is a really important one is I would love to see livestock not moving from one county to another. You know, if, if meat has gone to an abattoir, it can move afterwards. I don't think it should be moved on the hoof from one place to another. I just don't understand that. It, it makes no sense to me at all and seems so cruel and so wrong. Absolutely. You've referenced Ian Esbitt twice and you obviously have studied, you know, you know, you know a lot. So could you tell us a bit about what you've uncovered and what you think about this famous children's author? She, um, well, for one thing that's surprising, she, she lived at the turn of the century. She has suffragette friends. She was never a suffragette herself. And that's interesting because I suppose what happened was that she found her own way of being independent. She represented, um, she loved writing about children. She wrote some adult poems and books as well, but never as successful as the children's books. And I think it was something about being able to invest her imagination in childhood and what you could do with a a childish imagination. And in fact, she puts forward the idea that you should actually always carry that imagination with you through your life, because it's only that imagination that gets us through times and onto, onto new things. I think probably she wasn't the best mother in the world. I mean, even when you read when you read Railway Children, I know that there's a line where Peter says how magnificent she is when she's angry. But I mean, she spent an awful lot of her time in bed because she couldn't deal with things. And I think she used to be up late writing and then would get up late in the morning. She actually lost her... her she had a, a, a son that she called Fabian. She was part of the Fabian Society, so she was very, um, very much socially minded. Used to use all her money paying for poor, the poor around her and helping people. Um, so lived really, you know, hand to mouth all the time herself. Um, but she had a son that she named Fabian. And when he was 16, um, he had tonsillitis and they took his tonsils out. And as they did there at home on the kitchen table and no one was watching him. And he he suffocated on his, he, he woke up and, and vomited, which you sometimes do after um, having an operation with um, general anaesthetic. And no one was there with him and she lost him, which was a terrible trauma for her. But it was also the fact that, you know, somehow that had happened. I mean, I think she probably never forgave herself for it. But she was a great storyteller, you know, and she she must have both inspired her children and been... I think you you read about great writers and, and particularly children's life writers, and they're often not 
the great sort of mother figure that they seem to be for everybody else because for them they supply the families and the and um and things that are all going to work out and everybody can but they're they're tu- they're tussling with them with themselves and there's one thing yes there's one thing in her life that i think had a big effect and it's one of the things that makes the moment in the railway children at the end so poignant um people always talk about daddy my daddy the moment where father comes home and he's on that platform and lionel jeffries shot it so beautifully but when you read that, it 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 for me always um, makes me, I you know I'm always on the verge of tears when I just think of it, because it's that desire that's such strong fulfilling that desire for father to come home that moment that he can come home because of course for Nesbitt her father died when she was four years old and he could never come home, so I think there was always that that wish somehow that father would come home and in her writing she was able to create that but the, if you think of it there was always a in all of her stories I think that the, there was a father away or the parents were separated or there were difficulties you know um, so she felt that very much this episode is brought to you by Twizzlers long day late night feeling a little bored Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day no matter what kind of day you're having the perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. So that was really fascinating insight into E. Nesbitt and her life from star of Railway Children and Railway Children Return, Jenny Agata. And so grateful that she took the time to talk to our own Maria Hodson. And just lovely to hear her. What a, she's got such a lovely voice and really distinctive voice, and one that I remember from my childhood watching films like, um, you know, like the Railway Children, and and then growing up films like American Werewolf in London, which I think is one of the great countryside films. And I'm joined in the studio to discuss all these matters by Jack and Hannah, who helped make the podcast. Did you ever see American Werewolf in London? Yes. Yes. Jenny Agatha is the star. Yes. But they didn't talk about that. <laughs> um, um, so, um, gosh, now, that's a, now that is a proper sort of horror tale of the British countryside and the whole sort of straying straying from the path by walking over the moors. Jack, you've, you've not seen it, no? No. It's no. Rec- recommended, recommended viewing. Oh, I'll, I'll catch up on it. Perfect yeah. time of year to watch it. Mm. It is absolutely the, If the railway children's one end of the <laughs> spectrum <laughs> of soft Edwardian and now pre so or Second World War, 1940, um, the uh, American werewolf is certainly, it's sort of comedy but proper horror as well. And, and um, Jenny X is brilliant in that. So lovely. Thank, thank you, Jenny. And thank you, Maria. Great to hear you. There was one question which we didn't include in that, but I do. It's really funny. And t- talking of American Werewolf, this seems to be particularly appropriate. Um, Maria asked Jenny what her favourite British wildlife species was. This is her answer: Beast of Bodmin, <laughs> the, the fantasy Beast of Bodmin. Um, I don't know what that is. I think it's a wild cat that people see up there. So I, I think there, obviously, she's got something in. There's something there with the werewolves and and mystery big cats. Brilliant. So what's been happening? Well, we've got a lovely reader email to read through to you. But uh, sitting on the desk in front of me is a very curious birthday present. Now, it was my birthday recently, not something I would normally mention because at my age, 137, <laughs> it's not really worth, uh, worth sort of celebrating. But Hannah's very kindly bought me this. It's called the Acme Bird and Game Call 
specialist whistle. <laughs> now, I don't think I've ever been given such a brilliant or appropriate present, so thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, it's a funny little black cylinder with a tube coming out the top, which has a mouthpiece. This one is Nightingale Bird Call. So, um, and the instructions are, fill quarter full with water, blow gently and firmly, obtain trills by vibrating tongue. Now that's, I'm going to give it a go. I don't think I'm ready for that. <laughs> no. Um, so firmly and gently and firmly. Okay. <whistles> no, that didn't work. <laughs> Let's try that again. So this is a nightingale. <whistles> Um, it's like there's a nightingale in the room, Hannah. <laughs> I've got to try it one more time because it says... Brrr. Oh. There's something dirty about that. Yeah, I think... Should we play a real nightingale? Yes, please. And then if, if anyone can tell the difference, then let's... Um, here's a nightingale we recorded earlier. Um, I don't think I'm doing it right. It's, it's you've got to roll your tongue at the same time as. Oh, rah, 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 oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, maybe let's hold on. It's a, a, well, the, like clangers, a the clangers have come. <laughs> I, I like, I like, and I think the listener would, would like to envision this that every time you go to play, you're holding it like you're about to play a really. Emotional saxophone solo. <laughs> <laughs> I like to give it give it my all. And bird calls very, very dear to my heart. So thank you, Hannah. Okay. I, th I think um, a, a bit of practice needed there. It's a present for everyone. Um, obviously, nightingales aren't singing this time of year, which is a terrible shame. Um, they will be back in spring, so we can go out and see if we can um, torment the, the neighbourhood birds. Maybe we'll get them to sing. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, or, or make them silent forever. Um, <laughs> It is time, though, of foraging. I've I've had some amazing foraging adventures. This has been an incredible autumn, don't you think? Mm. Like, Definitely. unbelievable. Yeah. I don't know whether it's the incredible dry weather over the summer or whatever's happened in spring, but I mean, the blackberries are amazing, and we did talk about that in a previous episode. But, the, um, gosh, apples, pears. Now, the thing I've been foraging lately is chestnuts, sweet chestnuts, which just so abundant around me in Monmouthshire and I've filled sacks with them and then you've got to prepare them which is the uh, I gave some to you Hannah what did you do with them I made them into a uh, mushroom and chestnut risotto which was fantastic it worked it really oh good worked. Yeah. okay it's good so how did you prepare them as you told me I boiled them for about 12 so firstly I cut crosses into the kind of plump side and then I boiled them for about 15 minutes uh, and then because the crosses in the skin and the boiling, they open themselves out and then you're able to just sort of pop them out of their shells. Okay, that's quite a good way of, yeah, that's sort of how I've been doing it. And it's the best way of dealing with chestnuts. All this roasting chestnuts over an open fire is you're preparing yourself to fail. Fe festive though. Festive, Very it festive. is festive, yeah. And um, Nat King Cole and lots of others have sung about uh, that. But I don't think they sung about the results, which were... 
did did anyone sing fragments scattered <laughs> over <laughs> the hearth and rug? Um, so yeah, delicious. I have been putting them into sort of obviously with sprouts, with cabbage, just fried. Oh, they're just amazing. Um, Risotto is a good one. I made a chocolate torte using a BBC Good Food recipe. Fancy chocolate mm. chestnut torte. It's like a solid block of truffle. I haven't brought any in, I'm afraid. So uh, I'm afraid that's been eaten by the Collins family. But uh, the looks on everyone's faces, I shouldn't have mentioned it. It's fine. We've got um, cake. We've got cake. We have got cake. I have brought a um, Dundee cake. Be really interesting to hear what listeners have been foraging, particularly in the UK as it's autumn here. But around the world, if there's lovely things that you're foraging, we'd love to hear and share recipes and all that sort of thing because it's all part of the kind of immersion and enjoyment of the countryside so uh and part of talking of immersion we got this lovely reader letter i think hannah you should read it i'm going to pass it over to you hand it over so our letter here is from uh caroline green of north london and it's about a really recent podcast episode number 167 she says, I really enjoyed the podcast episode with Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, which was full of his cultivating and foraging energy. And it was great to hear your enthusiastic discussion with the team afterwards, especially when it came to the mulberry tree versus mulberry bush debate. It may be right that it is better to cultivate the mulberry as a bush, as they tend to be at risk of collapse as they grow older. But there are several venerable trees dotted around the country. Perhaps the most famous of these two are found in Stratford-upon-Avon at New Place, the site of Shakespeare's grand old house. The trees are said to be descended from the very tree planted by Shakespeare during the time that mulberry trees were introduced to Britain by James I. The king wanted to encourage a homegrown silk industry, but he chose the wrong kind of mulberry for silkworms. Oh, the scheme never succeeded. James I, dolt. Shakespeare's mulberry tree became a lure for tourists in the 18th century, annoying the then owner of New Place who had it chopped down. Oh, but an er enterprising early merchandiser bought up all the wood and created souvenirs from it. Many of these bardic relics survive today, and every August the mulberries in Shakespeare's former garden leave damn spots of juicy stains on the hands of passing tourists. Is that the out-out damn spot? It's mulberry juice. Not sort of like a stain of... No, no, she's just, <laughs> oh, right, she's okay. just referring. Oh, very... She's being very clever. Too clever. Caroline, <laughs> you're too clever. Um, thank you so much for that. Brilliant, brilliant insight into mulberry bush trees. And you would have thought there was so much history behind a mulberry. Well, I guess, yeah, yeah. And and also to get it wrong when you're, you're, you're starting up the silkworm, the silk industry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gav, I've got you some, uh, I've got you some mulberries. Uh, yeah, these will do you just fine. Yeah, I'll have a shipload of those. And um, that's the end of that. No, no silk industry. Absolute mulberry. Well, yeah. What a, what a, yeah. I can't follow that up. <laughs> Brilliant. So, Caroline, we're going to send you as near mulberry-related book as possible for <laughs> our letter of the week. Brilliant letter. Please do send in your own thoughts and emails and ideas, feedback. We love to get it. You can send anything. Contacts. What? And tree facts. And tree facts, yes. Tree facts are uh, highly recommended, although... Um, and we'll give out a book as a prize for the best one that we get each week uh, from the Podcast Library, which is an extensive gathering of countryside and nature books. It's really grown in the last few weeks. Yeah, it really has, yes. It's sort of sprung out of nowhere almost, you could say. It's impressive, though. It's the, good. The shelves it's good. Gone well, I, I love to wander through it on a, on a sort of rainy day. So... That's it for this week. Um, happy foraging. Do go out and see the film, The Railway Children Return, 
on in cinemas around the country at the moment. And thank you all for listening. Goodbye for now.